0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam
1: Pawatic.
2: Welcome to this week's Ask the Experts. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. We're lenders at First National and co host of the commercial real estate podcast. Our topic today is a fun one it's 2022 real estate trends. I've got a full house with us today. It's gentleman Ray Wong. I think you're all familiar. He's the Vice President of Data Operations and Data Solutions at Altis. Wendy Waters, the Vice President, Research Services and Strategy at Great West Life Realty Advisors. And Phil Stone, Principal and Head of Canadian Research at Bentall Green Oak. Phil, Wendy, Ray, thanks for joining us today. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to talk about 2022 trends. So we're going to kind of go around the horn on different asset classes and then hopefully cover just some general theories, themes that we suspect will earn even more momentum heading into 2022 and beyond. So let's get going. Wendy, why don't I throw it to you to start?
1: Okay, well, I think what we decided we would start with is I was going to share some high-level trends in the multi-residential asset class, and then I think the rest of the group is going to jump in and either challenge me or agree or add some additional color. So multi-residential, purpose-built rental apartments, certainly there were some disruptions early on in COVID. So I think I'm going to go back a little bit to talk about what's happened in COVID, and then we can look forward. COVID disrupted normal demand patterns that have to do with the migration of people, and that's no surprise. Supply kept coming. And so we saw vacancy rates really spike about a year ago when the CMHC data came out. We don't have the next CMHC data, which only comes out once a year. But we really saw vacancy rates spike, particularly in the downtowns. And this wasn't actually, despite some of the stories in the media, as much from people leaving the downtowns as the fact that new people didn't come downtown to fill up that new space. With Toronto being a bit of the exception, there was a net flow out of downtown and lesser extent Montreal, but the other cities still had a growth in occupied rental units downtown. It's just that there was a lot more rental units to occupy with new supply coming on. Now, starting to trend downward, we don't have CMHC data. We do have Yardi data, which thanks to Yardi from the buildings that they have the back-end software running on. And so we do know that things are starting to trend down, but vacancy is still elevated in most of the markets compared to where it was two years ago before we even knew what COVID-19 was. So Toronto did see a little bit more of a loss of purpose-built rental renters. I think some probably went into condo, a lot of condo supply came on at the same time. One of the other phenomenons for Toronto and Ontario was Toronto always has a net outflow of people intra-provincially, so to other parts of Ontario. And that still happened during COVID, probably accelerated a little bit. But new people didn't come, not nearly as many internationals. And domestic migration, the initial data we had for the GTA suggests it went flat or slightly negative. For Ontario, it went fairly strongly negative in terms of people moving to other provinces. That certainly caused some challenges that people are always leaving Toronto, but usually far more people come into Toronto, so it all works out for the Toronto apartment market. We only have provincial data right now, so that's why I'm talking about the provinces. Provinces that saw the net flow domestically were British Columbia and Nova Scotia. Vancouver and Halifax have the lowest vacancy rates in the Yardi data, as well as have had a rebound in rental rates. So that sort of tells you some of what's been happening and what trends we're seeing. And as we look ahead, the question will be whether some of those domestic migrants move back to other provinces, including Ontario, or whether they stay in BC and Nova Scotia. Another good indicator is we're looking ahead, and this just came out from a, a company called Zonda Urban that tracks newer construction rental projects as well as condo. Their rental data for the last quarter for these newer generations, so built in about the last 10 years. Rental rates were up quite substantially in downtown Toronto and downtown Vancouver. They've been pretty much flat through the pandemic in Zonda Urban's data. So that's a really good sign. In terms of the demand is picking up, especially in the downtowns, that we're seeing the rental rates rise. So that is a very good sign. A less good sign as we're looking ahead, MSCI NOI data. So the net operating income at rental buildings is still down year on year. So face rates are up. Yardi has face rates on turnover rents up. So when somebody leaves a rental unit, the new renter comes in and is still paying more. A lot of that has to do with, you know, someone's been there 10 years and rent control, new person comes in, they're still paying more even if rents were down in that market. But the NOI in MSCI has still been down year on year in most markets. So it's a sign I think that the face rates which Yardi and Zonda Urban are tracking might be supported in some markets by some incentives. Also, vacancy is still a little bit elevated. So again, your NOI, you might be restoring some rents on their units you do have rented, but there's still a bit more vacancy. Again, it depends on the market, hearing. some other meetings I've had just in the last couple of days, depending on where you are. A Vancouver landlord mentioned or a Metro Vancouver landlord mentioned that he only had one vacant unit in his entire portfolio right now. I suspect most Toronto landlords, including us, we definitely have more than one vacant unit, but that's certainly a trend that we're now seeing One of the reasons we're seeing things getting better right now is it looks like international students, we had an all-time high for Q3 arrivals of international students. They are an important part in some markets of the renters. So that's one good indicator. And obviously, with the governments now allowing immigrants to land in Canada, so before you might have had your papers, but because of COVID, you weren't allowed to physically come to Canada. That's now happening. So we're seeing immigration back. We're seeing students back. And we expect even more, there may be still be a stronger Q4 than normal on students. So all of those are good indicators as we look to 2022 for the purpose-built rental sector. So with that summary, I'll stop talking there and allow for rebuttal or for other comments.
3: It's not so much a cage match today, but we do welcome differing opinions. I would ask either of our other two guests today, if there's any key trends that you're seeing that maybe weren't covered by Wendy.
0: It's hard to argue with any of that data that Wendy presented. We're seeing much the same thing, not just from a market perspective, but also within our own portfolio. And as Wendy alluded to it, you know, I think we're still seeing, specifically in, in Toronto, some pretty hefty inducements in many cases to get vacancy rates back to where they were pre COVID, but I've been just surprised at how quickly, particularly in the urban core, that it's bounced back. You look at some of the outer suburban areas and some of the secondary markets around the major markets of Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and they really skated through COVID pretty well. But it's been this remarkable turnaround. And I think Wendy may have mentioned it, but rents that we're seeing, we're tracking market rents are back to about 5% off of where they were pre-COVID in downtown Toronto, which is pretty remarkable. Again, still heavily induced. In a lot of cases, one month free rent, you're getting some signing bonuses, but nonetheless, the velocity has been pretty incredible through Q3, as Wendy alluded to. Most of that is generated from students and other non-permanent residents, temporary foreign workers, for example, those numbers have been quite high relative even to pre-COVID trends. So that's really a good story, especially for the urban core of cities.
4: And I was just going to add the behavior aspect, because part of that exodus of the urban area for rentals, people moving back home as well as saving money and a few other things. So now, and this is sort of ducking into Wendy's office story, that people are sort of gearing back into sort of perhaps going back to the office. So that's where we're seeing the rental activity. But after two years living at home, there was basically no choice because also the housing prices have moved up despite low interest rates. So there's really affordable affordability issue. So there's really, in addition to the students and some of the immigration coming back, there's really no choice but to rent and as well as taking advantage of some of those incentives that Phil mentioned. So I think we're seeing sort of return, at least initially, for the rental markets and people sort of occupying a lot of those units again back in the urban area. Yeah,
2: we're not going to go down the interest rate rabbit hole, but they're up 100 basis points. I've been watching, but they're up another 20 basis points or so just in the last couple of days. Not that I'm paying attention. I mean, to Wendy's comment about the NOI makes perfect sense, too, because you know with inflationary pressures, insurance we've talked about is way up. Obviously, replacement or construction costs and apartments are a heavy sort of CapEx R&M usage. And so it makes sense that NOI is kind of lagged, even though we're seeing a rise in rent. Let's keep going. I think Adam and I were joking, our job here is not to ask questions, but really just to keep us moving through the topics. We've got four asset classes, capital markets, and so we want a little bit of time left to just go around the horn and talk about different things that are on our minds. So Wendy, let's go. Next one.
1: Okay. Next one, office. So obviously, vacancy rates also up in office. Statistically, it's really hard to know what this means because in the past, sublease space didn't show up as vacant space if there was still a tenant in it. But right now, for a while during COVID, buildings were empty. And so anything that was listed on sublease got listed as vacant. So I don't want to read too much into the vacancy rates is sort of my point. I'm looking more at the underlying fundamentals of the office market. And I think those actually still look really good, despite the fact that a lot of people are not back in the office. I guess Phil and I are back in the office. Not everyone in Toronto is. One is office jobs during the pandemic and even pre-pandemic have been growing much faster than all jobs overall. So that's obviously a tailwind. Even if some people end up working from home, you've got a large net growth in office jobs. That is going to be uh, positive for the office market. Jobs were up. Last I looked, it was up over 4% during the pandemic. Office-oriented jobs in both Toronto and Vancouver, as an example. And what's driving it? The finance sector continues to grow in Toronto. Obviously, it's a huge global hub for finance activity. That's not changing. Professional services continues to grow in terms of jobs. And obviously, the technology sector has also been growing with Canadian cities becoming an option as a, I guess, a branch plan or a secondary office, but also doing a lot of the real primary and big R&D for some of the big tech companies. So that I don't think is going to change. So those are all positive indicators for our office space. If we look at the work from home dilemma, which is obviously the big elephant in the room that every company almost who had office space managed to get the job done with their people at home, what does this mean post-COVID? And there's different debates. I'm in the camp that productivity is waning with people working from home. And I think the research suggests there are real benefits to being at the office for professional development, especially of younger people in the company. You learn not just from formal meetings that you might set up on Zoom, but informal meetings and just being able to be a part of a deal that happens spontaneously in an office. And CEOs are starting to see this in terms of saying they want most people back to the office. It doesn't mean everybody. There are roles in companies that we all know about, and this was happening pre-COVID, that are more routine that don't necessarily have a lot of advancement. And a lot of those roles were already being shifted to remote locations pre-COVID. It's going to accelerate that. There are people that don't need to come back to the office. I don't want to discount that there are some jobs that are probably not coming back, but the more creative, more innovative, the deal-making, everything, where there's a lot of collaboration coming back. So we've had 17% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in a KPMG survey in March of this year. Only 17% said they wanted to shed office space. That's down from 69% in the summer of 2020. So everyone thought they didn't need their space, and now they're starting to see that they do. And even when you talk to talent, there's a lot of people saying they want this flexibility, they want to work from home more. What does that actually mean? They want flexibility, is it they want to work two days in the office, or do they really want to figure out where's the best place to do their work? And so I think that's going to be the big question to solve for, is it doesn't mean that everybody has to be back nine to five, Monday to Friday. So as companies are trying to solve for this, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And I think we are still, at the end of 2022, if we have this conversation, I think we'll have a much better indicators as how companies are solving for this flexible workforce need. One thing about the employees and saying what they want, we did a survey with Abacus and just random office workers. They weren't Realty Advisors office workers. They were just random office workers. And for the people that said they wanted to work from home most of the time, we said, well, what if your leaders and the rest of your team are back to the office? Are you still going to want to work from home? half said no. So working from home sort of works when everybody's at home and it works less well, and people are recognizing that. So I guess it's taking opinion polls with an analytical lens on it is what are people telling us when they say they want to work from home more? I think they want to work from home when it's appropriate, but they also want to be back at the office when their team is there. I think we're going to see that as people go back, as people get on Zoom and they see that some of their colleagues are back in the office and they feel like, well, I want to be there too. And one final thing I'm going to bring up, some other research we did on equity, diversity, and inclusion and the office space. And again, this was with Abacus. And what we noticed was that visible minorities, and that's how they categorized people, immigrants and women have had a harder time working from home during the pandemic. And yet we're also more likely to say they wanted to keep working from home more post-pandemic. And so what does that tell you? You know, it's obviously it's been a challenge. They need some flexibility, but the fact that there's less interest in coming back could be a challenge for companies because we need the diverse voices. Everyone knows they want to have a completely inclusive company. And if you give everyone a choice, if you end up with only the white males coming back or with a disproportionate weighting of white males coming back full time, what is that going to do to trying to amplify the more diverse voices in your company if they're not in the room? So I think that's going to be a big puzzle for office tenants and the big employers to figure out is the equity, diversity, inclusion piece. So I will stop there and get some further comment from the panel.
3: I think on all those, the kind of theme is if you want to have an impact on your work, you likely need to be in the office. And that will likely be the driving force behind really getting everybody back in. I mean, the common theme I noticed between both your apartment discussion and your office is these apocalyptic <laughs> or catastrophic outcomes were contemplated and seemed really possible, whether it was rent strikes with apartments early in the pandemic, or this idea that half the workforce would never return to work. and I think we're seeing that You know, none of this is, well, especially the departments obviously now, none of this is coming true. All our worst case outcomes for this COVID experience didn't even come close to reality. And that's the kind of data that obviously us, the real estate community, like hearing. I would throw it to our other two panelists on the office front, any dissenting opinions, any voices of agreement.
0: I would agree with some of what Wendy had said. I think that we're still big believers in the fact that the physical office is still going to be a huge part of the knowledge workers' productivity stack, so to speak. But I think, and as Wendy mentioned too, it's really not a one-size-fits-all. So. I keep saying <laughs> it started out September of 2021. We'll start to have better idea of what companies are going to be doing. And it's pushed back to December. Now it's January. I keep wondering as I look at some of the higher frequency data that we're looking at, whether that's the Castle Systems data, which tracks key carb FOB data in the U.S., so swipes into the building, which is basically showing the U.S. average is basically 39% occupied relative to pre-COVID levels. Similar data that I saw from Avis and Young the other day, which looks at mobility data and tracking who's in and around office buildings, again, showing similar levels of physical occupancy. And so those numbers, if you look at that 39% back to the office, those are on pre-COVID levels, which may have been only about 60% occupied in 2019. So that's really only about 25%, if my math is correct there, of full capacity, right? And so I wonder, as we look at some of the southern markets in the U.S. and, you know, where things have been open for almost a year now coming up, you know, I just wonder here in Toronto, as we're thinking about the banks coming back in the new year, I don't know that that's going to solve all the challenges and some of the headwinds in that space. And so for that reason, I think that the outlook for office is going to be really bifurcated and it's going to be bifurcated by quality of building. And that's from both an occupier standpoint and an investor standpoint, too. So I think we're in this period of we've seen fundamentals and maybe, Ray, you can speak to the fundamentals a little bit more on the office side. We've seen that sort of deterioration sort of moderate in the last quarter or so, but may just be a pause in the market rather than sort of an inflection point. And I personally don't think there's going to be significant dislocation. But I think there's going to be some constraints to growth. I mean, that relationship between office using employment, which Wendy noted, has been spectacular, particularly in the tech sector. But that relationship between job growth and absorption has been permanently altered. And we're just still trying to figure out what that looks like going forward.
4: And just to that component, especially with the tech side, and I'm a big fan of the numbers coming out of Vancouver with the decrease in sublet as well as a decrease in direct space. And we're not seeing that, especially with Toronto and Montreal yet showing that people are still giving back space, but that's showing positive momentum based on especially the number of tech jobs that have been created and the expansions in Vancouver. I think all this has to do with the employees and the talent, because we had this problem pre-pandemic. Now we're having issues where now, even though the employment numbers are growing, there's been a lot of people that moved out of the city and they're into tertiary markets, just far away from the permanent office. And not really sure whether or not they're actually going to come back. And there are flight risks to a certain extent. If they're not going to adjust those policies, companies are going to have troubles retaining those employees going forward. So it'll be interesting, and I agree with you, Phil, that we probably won't know until mid to sort of third quarter next year on the impact on the office market, because I think people, their mindset, they have to get used to actually getting on public transit and coming to the office. So it's not so much as companies mandating their employees to come back, but they have to be comfortable with it. And there will be sort of a risk to some of the talent pool that's already at risk based on the fast growing companies and be able to retain them going forward.
1: Yeah. I can just conclude just the office part with some of the unique features of Toronto. And one pre-pandemic that we were tracking was we have you know, big moves into the brand new towers and it was not clear pre-pandemic and especially hasn't been clear in the pandemic, what space was then gonna come back and the backfill of the backfill. So the big shuffle of all the tenants, flights to quality. We knew all this was going to happen and then COVID hit. And so obviously the big moves into the bank towers and then into the new towers are happening, but remainder of that space and how much is going to be needed is obviously still unclear. The other interesting thing that I have found about Toronto and for people who don't know, I don't live in Toronto, I live in Vancouver, is how much more COVID cautious Toronto has been this fall compared to other cities in North America. And so like the worriedness about being on public transit, I was in Toronto shortly before Thanksgiving And I could have a whole TTC car to myself. Okay, on the SkyTrain in Vancouver, it's packed. So people are back in masks going to and from downtown. I also went down to Chicago, same thing. Transit was packed. Everyone's back doing things. And yet Toronto probably had the fewest COVID cases and the highest level of vaccination of those three cities. So there's this COVID caution in Toronto. We won't get into what the cause is, but I think the point is every person, every company is going to find their way back from all of this at their own pace. And it is going to take time to, I think you can talk to psychologists about this, but time to sort of get past some of the anxiety and the nervousness and every city and every person and every company is going at their own pace. So the good thing for Toronto is I think Toronto may not be full as far, you know, return to the office if we talk about this next year, but other cities will, and that should be a good indicator for Toronto. But I expect Toronto may be slower just based on what we've seen.
0: Yeah, Wendy, lots of green shoots though. Today was the first time I think I had to wait for the elevator. I counted 10 people ahead of me lined up. So
2: <laughs> it's happening, right? Super anecdotally, talking to my teams, and we're still just voluntarily allowed to come back to the office. And people go back and they go, I forgot how much I missed this. I forgot what it was like to get up and just get dressed and get out the door and see people and go out for coffee. It's like people are we spending, what, 20 months or so not doing it. People have just forgotten. it. I do suspect as people get back into the routines, that there'll be less hesitancy, as Wendy kind of indicated, particularly in Toronto. Anyway, let's keep moving, guys. 25 minutes in, two asset classes down. Let's keep going. Ray, I think you can do industrial in what, three words?
4: Yeah, Yeah, it's hot. I'll cover the industrial piece, but I can't really touch upon industrial without touching a little bit on the retail side. And again, there's a continued discussion with retail, how it continues to Evolve and retailers understand the need for brick and mortar just because people tend to usually buy more being in the store rather than online. Online, they're looking at something specific and just having that presence and way of branding experience, I think will really contribute to that. And then I think that's going to start to come back as well with similar to the office people going back to the malls. Part of it is that fear of missing out on certain sort of experiences as well as the social and There's that discussion about restaurants and that interaction before as a meeting place. So I think that's going to start to come back, but it also impacts, well, has impacted the industrial side in the way of e commerce and that demand for cheaper production and cheaper operating costs rather than shipping and rather than having a brick and mortar store. So, from the industrial standpoint, the national availability rate is 2.1%. Vancouver and Toronto are ridiculous at less than. 1.2%. The interesting thing is the overall lease activity in 2021, year-to-date, is about 43 million. And back pre-pandemic in 2019, the lease activity was at 39 million. So you're seeing that uptick in lease activity, especially with e-commerce and warehouse. From a user property transaction standpoint, 2021 saw less than a million square feet of transaction. And back in 2019, we saw 1.1 million square feet. Part of that is because of the higher prices and as well as the majority of the investment side picking up those assets. And so when you look at total under construction right now in, in industrial across Canada, it's 32 million square feet and mostly already that is already pre-leased. So couple that with 43 million square feet of lease activity and only 13 million square feet under construction and a low availability rate of less than 2%. The bottom line is demand is still outstripping supply. And this is, again, the easiest forecast going into next year. The rents and prices all up next year between 5 and 15%, especially with continued investor demand, as well as lack of space and continued push for growth. And that goes for land prices as well, especially in the secondary and tertiary markets. We're going to see that push and in Toronto down that 401 corridor down to Southwest Ontario, Amazon's building a new warehouse down in London as well. So again, cheaper land and a little bit more affordability. Future demand could still going to be strong because of what we said about e-commerce and continued growth in that area, but as well as the challenges we're dealing with today with supply chain constraints and problems. So warehouses and companies are going to try to stock up a little bit more of their inventory That's going to cause more of an impact on higher demand. So we're having some issues with dealing with reverse logistics and product returns, and that's going to push demand up. In addition to the typical warehouse need we have, plus the higher inventory storage for retailers, the reverse logistics is going to just cause more and more constraints on the supply aspect of it. And again, it's easiest forecast you can make in industrial that I predict that industrial availability rate will remain under 2% for next year.
3: <laughs> I like that because I know that Ray doesn't always like to make uh, firm predictions publicly. If he's saying it publicly, it means he's got a lot of confidence in what he's saying. So I take that as truth. So I would say to Phil and Wendy, because you're both part of organizations that represent you know, very significant purchasing decisions. All indicators are that industrial remain just as hot. But of course, prices you know, do go on to reflect that. Even though it's a desirable asset class, is it still an atmosphere of you need to buy it? Or at some point, will the pricing start to you know, push some people to the sidelines?
0: I think it is. I think it's buying income-producing industrial product right now. It's priced to perfection in many ways with some of the cap rates that we're seeing. Right now, I think we tend to favor industrial development with that yield spread that you can get on your yield to cost over buying in-place income. So I think on a risk-adjusted basis, I think we prefer going that route. And we've really been trying to sort of play around the edges. And what I mean by that is just geographically expanding the boundaries of what we would typically sort of play in with respect to the major markets of Toronto, uh, Montreal, and Vancouver, looking for a bit of extra yield in those markets. Ray mentioned a few of them, Hamilton, Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge area, East and Durham region, which is hot right now. With all the rooftops and the growth in those areas expanding out. And then the other area we're kind of looking around the edges too is into subsectors like cold storage, for example, where we think there's real undersupply, not only undersupply, but the age of that stock. And that goes not only for cold storage, but for logistics as a whole. If you look at a market, and in particular Toronto, which is the largest industrial market by a long shot, a little more than 80% of that stock is more than 15 years old. So it's really sort of underserved from a modern warehouse perspective.
1: Wendy,
2: do you have something you want to add on to that?
1: Phil covered it really well. I was going to say we've got clients where we're going to the US to get industrial product at a slightly higher yield than in Canada. And we've found some in Calgary that Calgary sometimes works as a secondary market to Vancouver, as well as its spot in terms of the Canadian supply chain. So I think Calgary may be an interesting market to watch in 2022, given some of the additional challenges in Vancouver as a result of the storms and just the opportunities there. So that's also a place we've been able to find some yield in the IPP, but otherwise we're looking to develop because that's the only way to make sense of it if we're going in Canada.
2: In summary, I guess it sounds like the low-hanging fruit's gone. Now you got to be a bit more creative to find your yield. Okay, guys, 30 minutes in, 20 more minutes or so. Let's finish off the asset classes. we got Phil with the Capital Markets. Who's got retail? I think, Ray, you're on retail also, right?
4: I sort of touched upon that in the in the industrial at the beginning. Phil or Wendy,
2: do you have comments about the retail market and what you kind of anticipate for 2022?
1: Phil, so you guys might have some larger shopping centers. We're food-anchored retail. It's done very well during COVID. So we anticipate that will continue. So it's again, it's the bifurcation story that needs of life retail is probably continuing to do really well. And some of the larger malls. I think some are putting in brand new experiences, and I think those are going to be interesting to watch. Boring retail is dead, but really fascinating, great experiential retail. We might see a rebound out of COVID as once people are comfortable, they actually want to go to these places and shop and be entertained. So I think there's some trends here in Vancouver. We've got the new Brentwood Center that's open with lots of entertainment as well as shopping. So I think the future of retail is interesting to watch, but boring retail continues to be an asset you do not want.
2: I've asked Ray this question three times. I want to ask it again, but I think the question in itself is the summary is that when does a retail acquisition just become a future industrial play or a land play, right? And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of the time is you're not buying the bricks and mortar, you're just buying the really well-located land surrounded by strong neighborhoods.
4: ICSE produces the top 30 most productive malls across Canada. So out of the top 30, 15 of those centers are actually adding more intensified mixed use in a way of residential condos. So in addition to your retail comment, watch for a lot more of that intensification, especially with the Yorkdales and the Bayview villages for more intensive use, increased values over the next few years.
2: Yeah, I mean, Cadillac Fairview just announced a variety of apartment buildings going up around Sherway. So that's exactly it. Wendy, any other comments?
1: Just going to say, if your customers won't come to your mall, you can build housing and then customers will (laughs) live at your mall. Yeah,
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, never have to leave one square block for the rest of your life, right? So of course, in real estate, we're heavily tied to capital markets and just what's transpiring is a capital-intensive industry. There's what we call almost overused now, this sort of wave of capital or flood of capital in the marketplace, which is driving all sorts of prices and yields in different directions. Maybe, Phil, if you want to just cover maybe what's happened in 2021 to set us up. And then I know it's tough to predict 2022, but
0: maybe just kind of give us some insight into what you think might be transpiring. The word I would use is tsunami of capital. I There you go. (laughs) Especially relative to what we saw in 2020, you know, you've got a tremendous amount of capital looking for both income that real estate provides, but also the diversification benefit in a broader multi-asset portfolio. So if I look at 2021 transaction volumes, data from Multis Group, I think we're on pace now to match or even exceed the record high levels that we saw in 2018. And that's pretty significant given we really only had two of four engines really firing, right? It's just been multifamily, it's been industrial, and it's been land typically in those two categories. And if you look at the percentage that those three buckets make up of the overall transaction volume, it's a bit about 70% this year. Historically, that number has been about 45 to 50%. It's interesting. I think 2022, I think it's going to continue. I think despite some concerns over the potential for interest rates to continue to rise. Aaron, you mentioned it earlier. As you're looking down minute by minute, interest rates are creeping up. But generally, I would say, I think we're believers in the lower for longer story, despite obviously things are going to trend upward slowly over time. I think when we look at who those buyers are, I think what carried us through the pandemic was a lot of private buyers, high net worth, and a lot of the assets that were trading hands were more bite-sized manageable pieces. And of course, you guys would see this on the lending side. But I think once we got through those few months there, the debt markets were frozen up, things started to loosen up, and there was availability of capital and low cost of debt capital to really fuel a lot of those private buyers and high net worth buyers. And so I think they're going to continue to buy into next year. But we've also got institutional capital that's come off the sidelines and will be a big force in 2022 as well. I was looking at a survey the other day from Hold's Wheel out of the US, and they surveyed a number of, of pension funds. And what they said was that the gap now between target allocations for real estate and what's actually been deployed into real estate is now the widest it's ever been at about 140 basis points. So they've deployed about, on average, of course, but a little over 9%, 9.3% into real estate and target allocations are around 10.7. So, you know, I think with that in mind, you're going to see more and more capital flow into the sector from institutions. And it's really a function of they've been on the sidelines and haven't been able to put much capital to work, but also just overall risk assets have continued to increase equity portfolios. And so you've got that denominator effect. And so even if you're not increasing target allocations to real estate, you're still having to add real estate to maintain that existing weighting. And anecdotally, just speaking with a client the other week, Canadian client, they're looking to move from 9% up to 13% allocation to real estate over into 2025 and so they're looking both Canadian and US about 60/40 and in core and core plus real estate. So, we're optimistic really from a capital flows perspective and you know, we've got this stronger economic backdrop. Of course, there's risk to that outlook, but that's set for improving fundamentals and continued rent growth. Although, as we've just kind of discussed, it depends on property type
3: you're looking at. We've talked a lot about various pressures for valuations in our sector. That would be yet another one. Large institutions wanting to almost do a 50% increase in their allocation towards real estate. That's going to have a significant impact because those are not small figures. when I mean, you're talking about growing that kind of book. Wendy, maybe we'll move to you to comment on capital markets.
1: Well, I think to Phil's point, if you're a seller, this is great news. But if we're all trying to get product for our clients and the fact there's so much capital chasing it, obviously it means the yields are going down. And that's certainly a challenge that we all face. And it's, you know, one of the reasons we're doing development, we're looking at secondary markets. I think the interesting thing to watch for capital markets and valuations in 2022 is going to be where COP26, all these net zero pledges start to play in, that the assets that have the most potential to help you get to your net zero pledges are those portrayed at an even greater premium. So a cap rate compression on those assets. That might be a great tailwind for Montreal because the grid is so green there. But I think that's certainly something to watch for in 2022. Also, obviously, the climate resilience scores that different assets have, and whether that's going to start to be priced in to different assets. And you know, for Canada, that's probably a tailwind because if you look at resilience scores, if we've got assets, you know, across North America or around the world, you see that the Canadian cities and metro areas tend to score very well in terms of looking at future climate change and resilience. So. That could be further pressure on Canada in terms of international capital wanting a position in Canada. So that's something we're going to be watching for in 2022. Is the extent to which this starts to get into the pricing?
3: Ray, one last go around on this topic. What are your thoughts on the capital markets?
4: Is the product right? And agree with Wendy. With there's a lot of people chasing those core assets and you know possibility for redevelopment and expansion. And with the amount of churn that we've seen this year and probably turn into first part of next year, especially with the deals that overlap going into next year, I think it's going to be more challenging. If Wendy's correct on the foreign buyers re-engaging in the Canadian marketplace, there's going to be less room for other players as well as on the product side. So it'll be interesting to see the activities. It's definitely not because lack of demand, but who wants to sell at this point based on the returns?
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. I think we're still seeing some pretty wide bid ass spread on the office. And I think that's obviously key with the ticket size being so big in the office sector. Will they come in to see a match of capital there? And on the retail side, I would say, actually been really surprised at how much liquidity has increased from where we were a year ago. And even, Aaron, as you noted earlier on some of those redevelopment plays, I think you know you're starting to see some more value-add capital come in as buyers are realizing that hey, this asset isn't worth what it was just a few years ago. And so you're seeing spreads
3: come in there. We've touched on inflation here and there. And the idea, of course, is real estate's a good hedge against inflation. And everybody's you know heard that. But real estate's a pretty broad category. You know, We broke it down to the main four categories today. In 2022, which of the asset classes is going to be the best hedge against inflation? I'll ask anybody to jump in who's got a passionate response to this topic.
0: Industrial. And it's the <laughs> rent growth story. <laughs> Too easy. Follow my yeah, multifamily.
1: It, you get your hedge from inflation from rent growth and seeing multi-res is probably good because if there's turnover of people, long office leases can sometimes be a challenge as a counter against inflation.
4: I think the worst one might be on land based on the development and the constructions and the material costs will be whether or not that's going to slow down development. But there's still a lot of demand, especially on the housing side, but whether or not interest rates start to impact that sector.
2: I'm going to jump in, guys, and go on a tangent because, you know, I like to do that with five minutes left. We didn't prep this, obviously. So I'm going to just pick one and we'll do this for all of you, I think. Phil, what's your biggest concern for 2022? And you can't say COVID.
0: I think it's that the inflation that we're seeing right now is perhaps masking demand, just the level of demand overall in the economy. So I think one thing we're digging into a little bit more is actual volumes. I'm thinking more from a global perspective, less maybe so North American. But I think that pricing factor in when you look at just nominal rates of industrial trade, for example, one thing we're really digging in is, is the demand as strong as people say? or Is this just a more transitory supply shock? And is that demand going to be there and going to be sustained without government support? That's one thing we're kind of keeping an eye on.
3: So, Wendy, you're in Vancouver, so you can't say flooding. But what's your biggest concern for 2022?
1: It's a tough question. I think one is obviously finding our clients' product in Canada that meets their return requirements. So that's, I think, company-wide. I won't say flooding because it's not directly related to one weather event, but the extent to which the need for net zero, what I said at the end of the capital markets discussion, climate resilience, the need to get to net zero, whether that results in some repricing of certain assets. I think that's something to watch for in 2022. I don't know if I call it concern, but it's going to be to the positive for some assets, but it may be to the negative for others. So climate resilience and the extent to which that results in some repricing globally, as well as in Canada.
2: And last but not least, Ray, you always get the final word here. And yeah, concern may be a bit of bad terminology, but what's the thing that's given you a little bit of pause for 2022?
4: I think we're still going to go through that transitional period that Phil mentioned earlier about that delay of going back to the office until. January, but is that delayed impact of immigration returning and we do have a sort of a labor shortage, whether or not that plugs up, but the housing market has been doing well without the immigration, as well as the labor transition back into the office or for them to be comfortable with that. I still have issues with the global supply chain, right? And how that's gonna impact pricing and inflation down the road and just getting the product into some of the markets. And we're still having chip shortages, and other resource shortages. So it'll be interesting to see pricing going into next year. Thanks, Ray. This is
3: quite the powerhouse panel intellectually, other than, of course, Aaron and myself. So I would have happily done two hours today. But thanks to all the guests for joining today. This has been fantastic. And thanks, of course, to the Real Estate Forums for putting this all together.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.